Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Cassandra Metternich. And this is... Murder Coaster. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another ride on the Murder Coaster. Krista couldn't make it today. She's on a well-deserved vacation. So we have the lovely Cassandra, a.k.a. Malformed Malcontent, filling in. And boy, do we have a doozy for you today. So step right this way, through the velvet curtains and to the left, and see the girl your mother warned you about. Oh, she's beautiful. She's sexy. She's hedonistic and terribly sadistic, with a smile to die for. Cunning as a jackal with the venom of a rattlesnake bite. She's the most despised woman in all of Canada. The Wicked Witch of Ontario. The Barbie of the Ken and Barbie Killers. The one, the only, Carla Homoka. Come on, Barbie, let's go party. Ooh, 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 yeah. And Carla Homolka has been described as a diagnostic mystery. To this day, we still have no definitive answers on how complicit she was in the horrible crimes in which she was involved. In the introduction to Stephen Williams' Carla, A Pact with the Devil, he says, The more she is studied, the more mysterious and inexplicable her past behavior becomes. During the course of my research to better understand this case, I have studied the FBI-sponsored paper, Compliant Victims of the Sexual Sadist, as well as delve deep into the psychological aspects of battered women's syndrome. I read many, many books and articles on this case, including Behind Every Successful Psychopath by Patricia Pearson, both Invisible Darkness and Carla Packed with the Devil by Stephen Williams. Deadly Innocence by Alan Cairns and Scott Burnside. Lethal Marriage, The Unspeakable Crimes of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka by Nick Prawn. And I watched the four-hour documentary, Ken and Barbie Killers, The Lost Murder Tapes, more times than I care to even say. In each of these, a different portrait of Carla Homolka is painted. In some, she is a completely innocent woman suffering from battered women's syndrome, which is how she portrays herself, claiming to have been beaten, gaslighted, blackmailed, and coerced by a highly intelligent, conniving, sadistic psychopath into going along with his vicious sex crimes. In others, she's portrayed as a compliant victim, someone who got in over her head and could not get out. And in others... She is shown as a full-on accomplice, a partner, and even initiator and planner of these heinous crimes. The truth is, is we'll never know what part she played exactly or how compliant she was. But we can go over the details and facts we do have, dissect her many, many lies, and try to discern her involvement and understanding some of the psychological aspects of a person involved in crimes of this nature. I think the lies are important. Even the most important aspect of understanding the psyche of Carla Homolka and ascertaining how involved she was. For instance, she claims she was constantly beaten by Paul 
for any infraction. Whipped with a belt, punched, kicked. The only problem is there's a lot of video of her naked and half clothed on the beach in a bikini. And there's never any bruises or marks on her body. Her own parents said they saw no signs of abuse whatsoever until the very final days of the relationship when she was, in fact, beaten black and blue in the face by Paul Bernardo. She claims she was sequestered and wasn't allowed to go out with friends or do anything without his permission. But she clearly went off with her friends on vacations without Paul. It's really a, a web of deceit she spins. She claims the sexual acts disgusted her, that the violence was abhorrent. But everyone who saw those videotapes said she appeared to be truly enjoying herself, smiling, laughing. And her lustful ways were known before Paul Bernardo even came into the picture. It also leads us to the question, are women capable of the same sadistic sexual cruelty as men? Do they get off on it? You always hear about men who can't achieve orgasm without violence and domination. But are women like this as well? As a rule, women don't usually kill and torture from a sadistic sexual need like your typical male serial killer. Usually women serial killers are out for financial gain or kill for personal reasons, not for sexual gratification. Eileen Wuornos comes to mind here, but it does happen. Women who are sexually sadistic killers are rare, but they do exist, most often in conjunction with a partner. Look at Moore's killer, Myra Henley, or the famous Rosemary West. There's also Manson family's Susan Atkins, who often opined what a sexual thrill death and killing was, how a knife going in and out of a victim was like intercourse. There's Carol Bundy, one of the Sunset Stripped killers, who joyfully engaged in necrophilia with her boyfriend, Douglas Clark. But most recently, we have Taylor Shabiznes, who is our best example yet. She, importantly, acted alone, strangling her boyfriend during intercourse, then using his corpse as a sexual plaything for hours before dismembering him, leaving his head in a bucket for his parents to find in their basement. So there are women who are sexually sadistic, psychopathic killers, rare as they may be. So the big question we're going to ask here today is how complicit was Carla Homolka in these infamous crimes? And could she, in fact, be the one who actually committed the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French? Let's get into it by going very deep and start with Carla's father who was born in Czechoslovakia. Because Czech culture is important to Carla's upbringing, as we'll see. Carla's father, Karel Homolka, was born January 25th, 1942, in what was then Czechoslovakia to a large family, where he was one of seven sons and three daughters. In 1950, at the age of seven, he immigrated to Ontario, Canada with his parents, Vaklov and Josefa Homolka, and his many, many siblings. Interestingly, through all the many decades Carell lived in Canada, he never lost that Czech accent and never became very proficient in English, often speaking in grunts. Well, in Czech, a homolka is a cone-shaped lump of cream cheese 
So possibly the name origin is to cheesemakers, but also possibly it was originally a nickname for mild or soft person or a nickname for someone with a cone-shaped head. So there's that. Uh, <laughs> an interesting fact, Czechs consume more beer per capita than any other country in the world. And in the Czech Republic, beer is actually cheaper than water. Uh, half a liter of beer costs just over a dollar at most places. And I think this really helps explain why, much later, Carell wasn't so concerned about his 15-year-old daughter, Tammy, getting just completely shit-faced. And Carla was allowed to drink before she was even allowed to date, which is usually reversed in American and Canadian culture. But it's an alcohol culture that Carell comes from. The Czech brewing history can be traced back to the 6th century. They invented the Pilsner-type lager, and the first Budweiser came from there and is still brewed there. Interesting. In Canada, where the Homolkas immigrated to in 1950 as the third largest Czech population after the United States and Germany, between 1948 and 1952, over 10,000 Czech refugees immigrated to Canada, fleeing a lack of social and political freedom. This may have been part of why the Homolkas were so permissive and why Carla was given so much leadway and often didn't face consequences for her actions. They had literally fled authoritarianism for a more freedom-loving and permissive land. The Homolka family worked as itinerant farm laborers in eastern Canada, Basically, a nomadic life, going from farm to farm, mostly as tobacco leaf pickers. Uh, apparently, they used to grow a shit ton of tobacco in Canada, which surprised me because I didn't think the climate was suited for it. They called it the Ontario Tobacco Belt. But since the 2000s, the government has actively discouraged farmers from growing the crop because, you know, smoking's bad for you and all. But but because of their nomadic lifestyle as farm laborers, Carell never completed the sixth grade. And then his father, Vaklov, died of cancer in 1957 when Carell was only 14. In the early 60s, Carell would meet Dorothy Seeger in a trailer park in Mississauga, Ontario. Dorothy's father was in, a const was in construction and because her mother was very sick, Dorothy spent most of her adolescence taking care of the family as well as working. So being a hardworking homemaker was basically hardwired into her. She was working as a secretary at the Lakeshore Psychiatric Hospital when they met, and they would marry on December 11th, 1965. And five years later, Carla would be born on May 4th, 1970. A tourist, which are considered hard-headed, down-to-earth, tenacious, reliable, loyal, and sensual, as well as materialistic, resistant to change, fanatical, indulgent, gluttonous, possessive, stubborn, and narrow-minded. Oh, it really kind of seems to describe her pretty well, honestly. So I have a feeling that given the five years of a childless marriage, that Carell was pretty happy to finally have a kid. And that's why he named his first daughter after himself. But I also think that being named after the family patriarch gave Carla a sense of entitlement and worth right from the start. Carla was the special one. Carla was the princess. 
After Carla was born, Dorothy devotes herself to being a housewife and wouldn't work again for 12 years. Why Carell and his brothers are now making a living selling black velvet paintings of Elvis and various trinkets on the sidewalks in front of shopping malls. I used to have a black black velvet picture of Elvis. Elvis. I love that thing. (laughs) And then on June 22nd, 1971, Lori was born, followed by Tammy Lynn on New Year's Day. 1975. Three toe-headed daughters. After moving all over Ontario, they settled into a trailer park in St. Catharines. As a child, Carla was severely asthmatic and frequently hospitalized. Whenever Carla became excited or frightened, she'd gasp for breath. Which must have been really scary for the young parents. And I can see them coddling Carla because of this. Right especially being the firstborn and father's namesake. But other than that, she appeared perfect. She was extraordinarily beautiful. She talked early, walked early, and from the, from the time she could walk and talk, she read. She'd remain a passionate reader her entire life, tearing through books. Her IQ was recorded at 131, which signifies a very superior intelligence and puts her at the highest 2% of the population. She's no dummy, that's for sure. Her teachers routinely described her as eager, enthusiastic, and a good student. She excelled in English and language arts, but didn't do nearly as well in math and science, which bored her. Hmm, seems like me and most of my friends, honestly. (laughs) In 1978, the Homolkas moved into the house in St. Catharines they would long occupy throughout the crimes and long after the dark trials at 61, Dundonald Street, in a new working-class subdivision known as Meriton, directly behind the Victoria Lawn Cemetery. It was only 800 square feet, but felt much larger because it was split into four levels. There was a deck and an in-ground pool. The pool became a focal point of family life, and Carell was living the immigration dream, living oppression and poverty, and finding freedom in paradise. But... There were signs of trouble in the suburban paradise. Rumors abounded that Carell would drink too much and get in heated arguments with Dorothy. And Dorothy complained that he demanded sex constantly. And she said she was relieved when he was off on one of his business trips. He had recently moved on from selling trinkets to tourists to selling lighting fixtures as a traveling salesman. Around the clinic where Dorothy worked, Carell became known as the pervert. And when one of Dorothy's friends started to get divorced, Carell came on to her, and not subtly. He started stalking her, hanging around her apartment building, once even getting inside and pounding on her door while screaming how much he loved her, but in his thick Czech accent, saying he was in loving with her and planned to leave Dorothy but the affection was obviously not mutual. At one point, Dorothy came to her friend saying Carell was deeply infatuated with her to the point of straining their marriage. But she had a solution, she said. You could save my marriage if you'd sleep with both of us. Her friend firmly declined and the relationship was never the same again. <laughs> no shit, right? <laughs> but I think this does show that Carla grew up in a house where promiscuousness and the concept of group sex did exist. 
regardless of how much she was aware of what was happening as a child. Right. And Dorothy, she was seen as a bit odd, too. She would sew stuffed cloth toys to raise funds for the shaver clinic and chronic care patients at Christmas. She would sew Santa Claus dolls. And little Carla would help sew these Santa Claus dolls. The Santas, they had long beards that drooped down past their waist. And when you lifted the beard, surprise, there was a big old dick hanging out the pants. Evidently, Dorothy's co-workers questioned the propriety of these well-endowed Kris Kringles as well. And as for little Carla, well, even from a very young age, Carla was considered strange and would lie for no reason. Her childhood best friend, who doesn't want her real name released, for good reason, describes her as an enigma of coldness and sudden warmth, who would tell strange lies for no reason, that she had a dog when everyone knew she didn't. She talks about Carla being incredibly delicate and, and feminine as a child, giving off the air of a princess who was obsessed with Barbie and Ken dolls. Ken and Barbie, right from the beginning. Right. She had over a dozen of them, and uh, they and their accessories took up an entire wall of her room. Her friend, who is quite athletic and a bit of a tomboy, says Carla bored playing sports and wanted nothing to do with outdoor activities. She says Carla loved to curse and thrilled at saying foul words when they were alone, laughing hysterically. It was like a drug for her being bad. It gave her a rush. Carla's childhood best friend also tells of cruelty and a sadistic streak. Uh, her friend, this little girl, she had a pet hamster named Georgie. And one day when Carla was at her house, Carla tied little Georgie to a pillowcase, which she said would serve as a parachute before chucking the little creature out the second story window. Such a scene. Right. And uh, for a moment, they said the pillowcase billowed out, but then collapsed and the hamster plummeted to the ground. Her friend was terribly upset and ran to the animal while Carla just laughed. The hamster died soon after this. The little girl's father, not knowing the true reason for the creature's demise, helped her bury it, placing it in a shoebox and giving it a funeral in the backyard. And here's where it gets really weird. A few weeks later, Carla convinced her friend to dig the hamster's body up, excitedly saying, I wonder what it'll look like. Probably all puffy, bloated. They found the old shoebox and lifted the lid to reveal the tiny creature's corpse. Its body was flat and stiff, covered in tiny worms, its eyes bulging. Carla stared as her friend reeled, screeching how awful it was. And later that day, as they were waiting for Carla's parents to pick her up, Carla asked to see her friend's hand, then poked her with a pin. And as her friend stared in shock at the bead of blood blooming on her finger, Carla pricked her own finger as well and pressed their fingers together, explaining that they were blood sisters now and they would have to keep each other's secrets until they died. Spooky. Indeed. So Carla is the oldest of these three blonde girls. 
In a way, she's been twice displaced. But Lori didn't offer too much of a threat to her. She had her father's large nose and was a little gangly and awkward. Their pecking order is pretty much established. Carla was the leader here. But everyone says little Tammy was undoubtedly the family's favorite. And why not? Carla was asthmatic and strange, a moody liar. While Tammy, Tammy was bubbly and athletic, outgoing and easy-tempered. Also, Tammy was the prettiest of the bunch, with a natural glow to her baby face and large blue eyes. Even as a child, there was something sinister looking about Carla. Even Carla herself noted the, quote, devilish glint in her eyes. Almost sounds like a fairy tale out of Grimm's Brothers' strange tale of three sisters. Yeah, and we all know how those originally ended before Disney got hold of them. Hmm. Also, Carla was, I'm just going to say it, she's a bit of a bitch. She and Lori would regularly tell their father to fuck off, and they would call him a dumb check. While Tammy, Tammy was always really sweet and caring. Yeah, Carla's cruel streak definitely extended to her father. She'd tell people she'd never marry a man like her father, someone who was poor and struggling and always, always away working. For her 10th grade English project, Carla cho chose Arthur Miller's play, Death of a Salesman, and made a video of herself playing the main character, Willie Loman, an unfaithful traveling salesman full of regret and despair so absent as to be nearly estranged from his family and slipping into senility. Carla played this character exactly as her father, from the heavy Czech accent to his way of walking. Carla worked as a nanny, hung around the pool with her friends, a typical teen. But in high school, her rebellious streak really started showing itself. She started getting into the occult and all kinds of spooky shit, playing with Ouija boards, lighting candles and incense, calling to the spirits. She became obsessed with this place called the Screaming Tunnels which actually sounds cool as shit. Absolutely. It's, right? It's this isolated train underpass. Um, David Cronenberg used it as a location in the Dead Zone. Great film, by the way. Amazing director. Mm -hmm. So the legend goes that a young girl had burned to death in the tunnel. And if you went down into that dark tunnel and lit a match, you could supposedly hear her anguish screams. Okay. That sounds like spooky fun, and I would absolutely do that. Right? It's uh, it's on my bucket list. Uh, Carla would sit down there in the dark, lighting matches, saying she could hear the screams. She got herself a pair of handcuffs and would attach them to her denim jacket. She'd love those handcuffs. They're going uh, to feature prominently in the story as it unfolds. And she started dressing all in black. Oh! wearing black nail polish and black lipstick, dyeing her hair black with streaks of orange and purple. It's cool shit, really. But uh, back in the 80s, this was not normal behavior. and It really did make you stand out. Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you from experience, actually. Uh, same. <laughs> <laughs> also, her friends say, no one told Carla what to do. She was her own person and her own boss. She was also experimenting in self-harm 
carving circles into her arms and filling them in with nail polish, which can definitely be a symptom of deep underlying psychological issues. She became obsessed with the book Michelle Remembers, one of the first true stories of recovered memory, though it was later completely disproven. Originally published in 1980, it was filled with satanic rituals and graphic sexual abuse memories of a patient that were repressed and only brought out under psychiatric care. It pretty much single-handedly kicked off the satanic panic fears of ritual abuse that swept through the 80s and 90s and destroyed countless lives when innocent people were accused of being violent and sexually abusive Satan worshipers. Yeah, this book will become uh, really important later on in episode two as Carla attempts to defend her actions. She'd use the debunked theories in it to say she'd repressed memories of the sex crime she committed. And that was why she conveniently forgot to tell the authorities about them. So remember that book, dear listeners and fellow freaks. Carla even bought a close friend a copy of the book, inscribing it with the telling epithet, there is always something more left to say. Hmm. And friends say she often talked about suicide and was obsessed with death and violence. Telling one friend, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to put dots all over somebody's body, then take a knife and play, connect the dots, and then pour vinegar all over them. <laughs> and she signed a friend's yearbook. Just get this. It's really too much. You ready? Absolutely. Let's hear it. All right. This is what Carla signed her friend's yearbook. Remember, suicide kicks and fasting is awesome. Bones rule. Death rules. Death kicks. I love death. Kill the fucking world. Sounds like some pretty intense song lyrics. <laughs> yeah, maybe she, she could have probably helped Parbernardo later on because his rap lyrics were fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and speaking of what a good lyricist she was, she was accelerated to uh, advanced English, but she almost failed biology, even though she loved dissecting frogs. Yeah, but, um, she claimed to love animals. Well, clearly not hamsters or frogs, though. Yeah. And she got herself a job at the number one pet center in the Penn Center Mall, where she really excelled at taking care of the animals, honestly. But it seems to me her love of animals was like just another thing she could manipulate and control. She trained the family cat to do tricks. Shadow their big gray tabby. He would sit up, beg, roll over, all on command from Carla. It was all, wasn't all edgy darkness. There was still a lot of Barbie in Carla, princess. She formed a little clique called the Exclusive Diamond Club with a couple of friends, with the motive to recruit rich, slightly older men who were hunks, get a diamond, marry, and live happily ever after. Definitely not the most uh, goth thing I've ever heard in my life. No. Right. Well, uh, some of her friends' parents noticed the way their daughters were changing under the influence of Carla. Tracy Collins started failing classes, not caring about school. And eventually her parents forbade her to keep company with Carla altogether. And Carla, 
she had a boyfriend named Doug. He remembers her as, quote unquote, different. <laughs> anyway, Carla's boyfriend, Doug, uh, he moved to Kansas with his parents. And at this point, we're going to see just how independent and strong-willed little Carla was. In absolute defiance of her parents, she goes and gets herself a plane ticket with money she'd saved from her job at the pet store in the mall and takes off to Kansas to see him. You know, which is like a really bold move for a 16-year-old high school girl. And it was during this trip that she lost her virginity. She'd come back and tell her friends tales of cocaine and orgies, saying he'd tied her up and gave her hard spankings. Hard spankings. This is all mm. some wild shit for Kansas. Yeah, definitely wild for Kansas and evidently completely made up. She did lie. A lot. Right. After being contacted by the police when the case broke, Doug said it was just normal sex, nothing unusual at all, very vanilla and tame. Yeah, so we see, you know, deviant and sadistic sex. It was obviously already a part of her fantasy life. She's lying about it to her friends, bragging about it, trying to impress them. And this is long before Paul Bernardo came on the scene. No. Speak of the devil and he will appear. Here comes the sickest and most deranged love story in Canadian history. Buckle up, folks, because here is where Carla Homolka meets Paul Bernardo. It's truly become an iconic moment in true crime history. In October 1987, because of her job at the pet store in the mall, Carla and her best friend, Debbie Purdy, were invited to the Hagen Show, which is a pet supply convention in Toronto. Carla, true wild child, after a cocktail party sponsored by the event, she and Debbie, who she called Dirty Purdy, had gone to a disco and picked up two older drunken men, taking them back to their room in the Howard Johnson's they were staying in. The men were belligerent and quarrelsome. A commotion broke out and woke up Carla's boss in the adjoining room. Her boss couldn't get the rowdy men to leave, and the district manager of the pet store was called up. And eventually, hotel security had to come and forcibly remove the drunken men. Their boss lectured the girls on the dangers of bringing strange men into their room, then went back to sleep. But Carla and Debbie weren't undaunted and went back out, now dressed in pajamas, and headed to the hotel restaurant. And it was here that Carla met the love of her life, the Ken to her Barbie, Paul Bernardo. The first time I met him, I knew I'd marry him, she'd later say. He puts women under a spell, you know. I fell in love that night. Paul Bernardo was a preppy. A wannabe yuppie. I get a real Ted Bundy vibe from him. Like Bundy, he had a bachelor's degree and a winning smile that charmed the ladies and fooled people into thinking he wasn't an empty, soulless psychopath. Paul was a junior accountant at the prestigious accounting firm Price Waterhouse. But like Ted Bundy in law school, Paul was never going to pass his state accounting test, for he too was consumed with too much hatred and rage towards women. 
And like Ted Bundy, Paul discovered he was illegitimate. And the man he'd grown up thinking of as his father was not his father at all. The man who Paul thought was his father most of his life was a known peeping Tom who was molesting his own daughter, an act he would eventually be convicted and serve time for. Like him, Paul went into accounting. And like him, Paul was a peeping Tom. And that term isn't as innocent as it sounds. They're not just taking a quick look in the window like some amusing cartoon character. These guys, they're furiously masturbating and usually having violent, violent fantasies. It's really disturbing if you think about it. Someone staring in the window, looking at you masturbating, thinking violent thoughts. I I think they we should come up with a new term because peeping Tom, it just sounds too damn cute and innocent. Mm. I don't know. Autoerotic window stalker, voyeuristic public masturbator, future serial killer. How's that? Because they all did it. Ted Bundy, he he was he loved doing that. That's how he would stake out his victims. Well, Paul was 23, six years older than the teenage Carla, but it's six foot with an athlete's physique, dreamy blue eyes and feathered blonde hair. He was a genuine hunk, a complete and total Ken and quite the ladies man. Grown women literally fought over him. He was exactly what the exclusive diamond club chartership called for. But in many ways, he was the opposite of Carla, wearing polo shirts and white shorts to her black leggings and Doc Martens, his prep school haircut to her wild, multicolored locks. When they became a couple, he would tell her not to dye her hair anymore and told her to lose all the black clothing and makeup. And she became the Barbie to his Ken. She'd really come full circle in some ways. You know, it's funny that when they met, she was wearing pajamas, like she was waking up to a whole new beginning. Very interesting. And they were also compatible in a sexual way. You know, in, in less than an hour after meeting, they were in Carla and Debbie's room going at it hot and heavy while Debbie and Paul's friend Van sat on the sofa uncomfortably watching. At one point, Paul began to overheat and Carla retrieved a glass of ice water and poured it all over his back. In the morning, they took a shower together and exchanged phone numbers. And Paul inevitably promised to come and visit her. Oh, young love. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and just the next weekend, he was doing just that, driving down from Scarborough to St. Catharines. And Carla was so excited, she threw a little party. But first, they went and saw John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Nice. I guess <laughs> I hate that they like all the stuff that I like. Uh, but I, he, <laughs> then while her friends were partying, partying at her parents' house, she took him to her downstairs bedroom, locked the door and showed him her handcuffs. He was impressed with those handcuffs. He loved shit like that. She told him to handcuff her hands behind her back, got down on her knees and told him to lift her skirt. And as Paul got behind her, he asked her what she would think if he started raping women, something that had been on his mind, a fantasy of his. She turned her head, 
cheek pressed to the floor, gazing up at him and said, that would be cool. <laughs> I know, right? Okay. So, okay. So they barely know each other. She's got him handcuffing her and he tells her he wants to be a rapist. And she says, cool. Just fucking hell, man. What a beginning to this relationship. And Paul, well, Paul follows through with his plan. He goes out and starts raping women at knife, knife point, lurking around bus stops and dragging them into the woods and suburban backyards, and ditches. He becomes known as the Scarborough Rapist. There's, there's a misnomer out there that he already was the Scarborough Rapist when they met, but that's simply not true. He didn't start raping until after they met, and she knew the whole time. And as we will well see, was even directly involved in some of the incidents. She's such an enigma. She seems like she's like both sadist and masochist. Like she's using her masochism as a form of sadism. Does that make sense? Like absolutely. Yeah, like passive aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. She would uh, remark about being dominated by him was a thrill for her. She said, with the other guys. I could always do what I wanted, and that was boring. In all my previous relationships, I was in total control. I never cared what others thought. But Paul would try to dominate her, and she liked it. She craved it. She literally gave him the handcuffs to bind her with. Besides all the rape talk, bondage, and violent sex, they were also adorable little lovebirds. Oh. Carla would constantly be writing him sweet little love notes, expressing her affection. Some pretty fucking cheesy stuff like, to my prince love from your princess. To a little more risque talk like, roses are red, violets are blue. There's nothing more fun than a pervert like you. And again, this appears innocent, this note. But you got to remember, he's already told her he's having rape fantasies. And he's going to start acting them out in real life. So, like, at what point is she complicit? We'll see soon enough. Well, Carla was head over heels in love, and her parents loved him, too. Dorothy was as enthralled as her daughter with this polite, slightly older, well-to-do and educated young man with a good job. Paul became quickly a fixture in the Homolka home. It's a long drive back and forth from Scarborough to St. Catharines. So Carell and Dorothy started letting him sleep on the sofa in the basement right outside Carla's door. And he, uh, at, that, at that point, he basically moved in. For Christmas, Paul gives Carla a $300 dress, a gold necklace, and an expensive Gundy teddy bear she called Bunky. Bunky. I fucking mm. hate that stupid teddy bear. Bunky will make a lot of appearances in this story all throughout. And is also a sign, to me at least, of her enjoyment of all the mayhem. Later, she'd give Bunky to the victims to cuddle with right before they were about to be murdered. She claims she gave them Bunky to hold as a way of easing their suffering. And then later still, when she was under surveillance at a mental hospital, she would carry this stupid fucking teddy bear around and cradle it. Bunky. Right. They should have taken it away from her. It's it's 
it's a crime. It's crime scene evidence is what it is. She's walking around cradling crime scene evidence high out of her mind. Totally. We'll get there. We'll get there. So so what did Carla give Paul for Christmas? Well, it's a hand-printed document reading. Upon presentation of this coupon, Carla Leanne Homoka will perform sick, perverted acts upon Paul Kenneth Bernardo. These acts may be chosen by the recipient of the coupon at any time. This coupon expires January 2nd, 1988. Love, Carla. Oh, you know, I got to be honest. That, that is kind of cute. But you know what's not cute, though? What's that? That during the same exact time when Paul was out raping, he'd make his victim say, I'm a bitch. I'm a cunt. Merry Christmas. I love you. Merry Christmas. This is my present to you. I'm letting you do this to me because I hate my boyfriend. Yes, that's that's not cute. It's actually quite disturbing. And unfortunately, it only gets worse. Much, much worse. But now, something really weird happens. Paul becomes extremely angry with Carla because, because she wasn't a virgin when he met her. And to me, it's like, what the fuck? The reason they fell in love was because she fucked him after knowing him 10 minutes. That she wanted him to handcuff her hands behind her back while he fucked her. Would a virgin do that? He, right? He's so weird. He's obsessed with virgins, with hymens, with blood. Why? If you were this sexual dynamo who could go on forever and do all this stuff, wouldn't you want a lover with some experience who knew what they were doing? You'd think so. Well, they soon made up, but he'd made this precedent. Carla would never be good enough for him because she wasn't a virgin. He deserved a virgin. Paul was the king, and the king wanted virgins. But far from a virginal setting, their sex life was taking some really kinky turns. She had bought a studded dog collar and would wear it around during their lovemaking, and he would grip and pull it tight. She even had a card with a gift that read, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but whips and chains excite me. Only you know how much. <laughs> then he encouraged her to name his penis. She called it, get this, Snuffles. Snuffles? I don't know. Whatever. And she, <laughs> she also gave him a <laughs> note that read, I love it when Snuffles shoots in my mouth. <sighs> Paul would take Polaroid pictures of her, grinning up at him through a gag, arms handcuffed above her head, legs spread. He also took Polaroid shots of Carla masturbating with a wine bottle, of him squeezing her nipples, close-ups of her genitals. He rigged up a timer and got shots of them doing all kinds of sex acts, sodomy, oral copulation, you know, virgin stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Carla applied to University of Toronto and York University and was accepted to both schools, but decided not to go because she and Paul were getting married. Oh, yay. There's no way this relationship can go wrong. Right. No way. <laughs> uh, they go to Carla's prom, which is on a boat. 
I don't know if that's a Canadian thing or what. And Paul goes and gets in a fist fight with a bunch of guys he accuses of flirting with Carla. And here again, we see Carla's intensity and her fighting spirit because she jumps right in and socks one of the guys with a closed fist. Fist. Not a fish, a fist. Although they were on a boat. Uh, <laughs> sorry. She's not, you know, she's not some blushing violet. But anyway, the cops get called. And this incident, it breaks the whole promo. Well, at least he didn't rape anyone. <laughs> yeah, at least there's that, right? <laughs> and then, and in uh, September of 1989, Paul quits his job. He had a stack of credit cards he planned on maxing out. And then he just declared bankruptcy and start all over. Plus, there was all his side hustles, like worm hunting and cigarette smuggling. Wait, wait. <laughs> Worm hunting and cigarette smuggling. Yeah. Him and a buddy oh. invested in a van and they hired a whole crew to gather and sell worms. You know how many worms a good worm picker can pick in a night? 10,000. <laughs> so that's a lot of worms. Right. And uh, the worm picking, it was going great uh, until a big storm came and the rain, it ruined it for them all. But the, the cigarette. No, the worms. <laughs> <laughs> Because you can't pick worms in the rain. So they just sit in McDonald's and look at the rain outside. Oh, gosh. Yeah. In their shitty van. Uh, and the cigarette business, uh, that, that, was, that was a good one. It was a double your money venture. So at the time, Canada was taxing the shit out of cigarettes as part of a health initiative. So Paul and his buddies would go across the border into the United States and buy cartons of cigarettes at tobacco shops. That were they were all conveniently located right over the border too, and then they'd smuggle them back, putting them into like the panels of his car and shit, and they'd sell them to these bikers they knew for twice as much as they bought them for. He was making like a thousand bucks a week, which isn't bad for the eighties, you know, it's pretty good. With his buddies, the Smyrnas brothers, and the uh, Smyrnas brothers, they were childhood neighbors of his. These Greek boys with a criminal streak, uh, Van Smyrnas. He'd been there the night that Paul met Carla, and he would be the best man at Paul's wedding. Paul had all kinds of schemes. He was going to buy motivational speech tapes, re-record them word for word with his voice, and sell them. He was even going to be a rap star. His hero was Vanilla Ice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will get into it in the episode, too. I'll, 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 we'll talk about some of the lyrics. It's it's some good stuff. It's not, it's not good, no. <laughs> working was for suckers Paul thought and it took away from his rape time because unfortunately Paul was really busy raping yes he he was from 1987 to 1990 Paul Bernardo would attack a minimum of 16 times becoming known as the Scarborough rapist grabbing young girls and women at knife point and dragging them into backyards and forests where he'd assault them sometimes for hours he put the suburban city through a reign of terror. What's most chilling? He wasn't always working alone. Yeah. It would appear Carla was present and involved in at least a few of these rapes. For instance, a 14-year-old girl was walking to her local rowing team in the early morning when she was stopped by a blonde woman who drove up in front of her and waved at her from the car. When the girl paused to gaze at the woman, 
an assailant leapt out from behind her, dragged her into the shrubbery near the rowing club where he sexually assaulted her and stole her jacket as a trophy. Also a young woman named Denise Chenier was attacked in an underground parking garage. And during her assault, she was sure there was someone else with him, a woman with something in her hand like a video camera. Later in their relationship, Paul and Carla would stalk a waitress from the Red Hot Chili Pepper, which was a beer and chicken wing, a beer and chicken wings place in downtown St. Catharines. Stalking women had become a fun pastime for these two deviants. They followed this waitress home, casing out her house. One night, as Carla waited in the car, Paul crept up to the woman's window with his video camera and filmed her as she rubbed lotion over her naked body. He became so incredibly excited, he couldn't keep the camera steady. And he ran back to the car, jumped in, and began to masturbate furiously. Carla, not thinking this was some kind of red flag, she actually thought it was fucking hilarious and just laughed and laughed and laughed. Whether it was boldness or stupidity, I I don't know. But Paul never wore a mask during these attacks. And he would repeat the same phrases over and over and over to each and every victim, insisting they tell him they love him, leaving behind copious amounts of DNA. Just pretty smart. Right. He's he's not the genius. Carla's mm-hmm. definitely the smart one in the relationship, if, if you look at it. So... uh on May 29th, 1990, you know, like you say, Paul never wore a mask. Uh, a computer generated drawing of the Scarborough rapist was released. And this drawing looked exactly like Paul. I mean, I mean, exactly. The victim just got it perfect. It's it's fucking uncanny. It's almost it looks like a photograph of him. We'll post it up on Instagram. And uh there was a $150,000 reward and all kinds of people called in and reported Paul. But at the same time, all kinds of people were reporting others as well. Paul was just one more Ken looking Canadian white boy. But there was enough suspicion that Paul was called in for an interview at one point. He put on a mask of sanity that hid the empty psychopath inside him and jovially laughed at the police, freely offering up blood and saliva for DNA testing, telling them that he had no problem picking up girls and certainly didn't need to rape anyone. They found him completely believable and not suspicious in the least. Master manipulator. Yep. But they had his DNA. Too bad it would be years before anything came of it. For Christmas 1990, Carla wanted to give Paul something special. Something very, very special that only she could give him. Carla wanted to give Paul her youngest sister, Tammy. Paul had become obsessed with 15-year-old Tammy. She was the virgin Carla should have been. The beautiful virgin King Paul deserved. Paul had long been telling Carla how he desired the young teen, and Carla went along with all of it. Carla had broken the Venetian blinds in Tammy's room so Paul could sit outside her window 
masturbating and videotaping as she undressed at night, which is just so, so sad. That bond of trust and respect between two sisters, so broken. They they found Tammy's dildo, and Paul would fuck Carla with it while she pretended to be Tammy. Tammy and her innocence played right into their hands. She seemed to know Paul was watching her from the window, and mentioned it, in fact. At one and once a friend sleeping over had seen Paul filming them sleeping from the doorway of Tammy's bedroom. And the next day they laughed about it, exclaiming he must've been drunk. Hmm. Just how much Tammy knew is unknown, but she did flirt with him. Tammy would ask Paul who was better looking her or Carla. And Paul would always say you are Tammy, which could not have sat well with princess Carla. Hmm. Paul and Tammy, they had this game where they'd play fight. Tammy would slap at him and slap at him until she was sitting right in his lap, straddling him, and they'd be face to face, noses within inches of each other. Just some seriously weird shit. And even one of Lori's boyfriends had noticed it and thought it was weird as hell. Sometimes Paul would, noticing that people were thinking it was weird, he'd push her away and say, what are you doing? People can get arrested for that. There's a rapist in Scarborough the cops are after. One day, Paul and Tammy had to run to the store for a quick errand and were gone for over six hours. Carla was irate. Paul straight up told her he and Tammy had been making out. Yeah. It all begs the question, how jealous was Carla? Had she grown to envy and even hate her youngest sister? the sister her parents loved the most, the athletic and outgoing bubbly sister, fresh-faced and sweet, the sister that her own boyfriend said was the better looking of the two. It's like the evil queen in Snow White asking her magic mirror who's the fairest of them all. Right, right. One thing that's often glossed over in this case is the fact that Christmas was not the first time Paul had sex with Tammy. He'd take her virginity much, much earlier in July when Carla fed her Valium lace spaghetti and alcohol. Tammy stumbled into a room, passed out on her bed, and Carla watched from the doorway while Paul stood over her masturbating. He then mounted her, but she stirred from her drug-induced slumber, and he was forced to stop. What's really weird is it said she woke up one minute after the incident. It makes me wonder, did she know? I mean, how could she not? It wouldn't have been the first time she woke to find Paul either in her room or staring at her from the window with broken blinds or even lurking in her doorway, filming her with his video camera. And we just have to stop and take a minute and think about this real quick. Carla is the oldest daughter. And you can see from the video footage that in many ways she's running the show, bossing her family around, insisting they play along with Paul's stupid extreme close-up game from Wayne's World. She's calling her father a dumb check, telling him to fuck off. She's got her now 26-year-old boyfriend moved in. She's getting hammered, getting her sister hammered, just running rampant over this house, breaking the window blinds in her sister's bedroom, drugging people. What the fuck? 
Is it the freedom that Carell's family was searching for when they left Czechoslovakia that allowed this crazy permissiveness in Carla? At one point, Paul goes downstairs and is filming Carell laying on the sofa, nothing but a towel. I mean, it's so awkward, both disrespectful and weird. Why is this man laying around basically naked anyway, with nothing but a small towel wrapped around his waist? Yeah. Uh, of course, that was probably normal to Paul. His own father, well, the father that actually turned out wasn't really his father, but he thought was his father, had been molesting Paul's sister and jerking off in the neighbor's bushes while looking in their windows. And Tammy, she was she was well aware they were drugging both her and her friends, commenting and seeing bits of white powder in the drinks Paul served them. It got to the point where Tammy's friends would either accept drinks from Paul or they'd dump them out. In fact, on the night she was murdered, Tammy says clearly and loudly, these guys are trying to poison me. Hmm. And no one batted an eye. No one said a word. What the fuck, man? Mm -hmm. Also that night, she looks up at Paul as he's videotaping her. She says she sees two video cameras. That's how plastered she was. She's like seeing double. So, all right, let's just get into it. Here we go. The videotaped rape and death of Tammy Lynn Homolka on Christmas Eve, 1990. And warning, folks, the show starts to get a little graphic at this point. And I just want to make a disclaimer. What we're trying to do here is understand how complicit Carla was in these crimes which is why we're going to go into some details. We're not trying to be exploitative, but these things happened, and these stories deserve to be told. So on December 23rd, there was a blizzard. Tammy was supposed to spend the night at a friend's for a sleepover, but it was canceled because of the snow. Carla and Paul sat in Paul's car, parked in front of a butcher shop a few blocks away crushing halcyon, a very strong sedative used to treat insomnia, into a fine powder. Carla had stolen the halcyon pills from the veterinarian's office where she worked, as well as liquid halothane and anesthesia similar to ether. Paul, he had himself a brand new Sony video camcorder, and he was real excited. And when he and Carla returned from crushing the pills, he's running around the house, filming everyone, zooming in to parody Saturday Night Live's Wayne's World while shouting, extreme close-up. They're making daiquiris for Tammy, spiking them with the halcyon. And Carla just seems so happy. You can find clips of these videos. And seriously, just look at Carla's beaming face. I don't know how you can fake that. She doesn't appear battered or troubled or hesitant. She looks ecstatic yes she did tammy too seemed flirty and defiant when paul starts in on his vanilla ice impersonations she looks at the camera and says no <laughs> right good for her it's fucking <laughs> awful i hate that shit absolutely <laughs> they'd given tammy 10 5 milligram halcyon pills but she was still pretty awake at that point and, you know she probably had a tolerance to them so um, Paul made her a rusty nail, which is scotch and drambuie. 
And that's when Tammy famously says in front of the whole room, these guys are trying to poison me and no one bats an eye. Oddly enough, the only person who seems to notice or care how Paul and Carla are shoveling drinks down Tammy's throat is the middle sister, Lori, who tells them to stop. But nobody pays any attention to her and goes off into her room. No one pays any attention to the middle sister. It's like the Brady Bunch. Only instead of Marsha, 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 it's Carla, Carla, Carla. Eventually, the parents retire, retire to their bedroom, and Paul, Carla, and Tammy descend into the basement to watch a movie, Lisa and the Devil. Which is actually a really cool, weird, old horror movie. Yeah, it is. I hate the way these creeps love horror movies and read Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> well, finally, Tammy passes out, and Paul and Carla immediately get to work. They push her shirt up, slip off her sweatpants and panties. She's got her period, and there's a sanitary napkin. So in this video, Carla is not enjoying the sex acts like she does in other videos. She seems stressed. And you can see she's mostly doing this to please Paul. I mean, it is a Christmas present that she's giving him after all. But still, it doesn't seem to concern her that they're raping her own sister. I mean, she's shoving a rag covered in halothane right in the poor girl's face. She seems mostly preoccupied with getting caught, repeatedly telling him to hurry up. She demands he put a condom on, which he does not do. Apparently, they discussed this, and she was afraid of her sister getting pregnant. But finally, she acquiesces and says, fucking do it. Just do it. So that's permission she's giving him. And he's not saying, shut up, I'll do what I want backhanding her or something no she's dictating the rules and finally acquiescing the whole thing is mind-blowing and disgusting totally totally and paul's raping tammy and telling carla to suck on her sister's breasts which she does paul says yeah you love me carla shoots back at him quiet and it makes me wonder is that the kind of response you hear from a battered woman in the next shot, Carla's performing cunnilingus on her sister. Now, a big question is what happened when the camera was off. Did Paul threaten Carla to make her go down on her own menstruating sister? Unfortunately, we just don't know. Regardless, Carla is not happy. She's even whimpering a little bit, telling Paul it tastes disgusting when he tells her to lick the blood off her fingers. She doesn't have that mischievous glint in her eyes or that devilish grin. She's not pretending to like it, which makes me think that in the other videos, she truly was enjoying herself. I mean, she's not shy about letting Paul know when she doesn't like something. As Paul begins to sodomize Tammy, she shudders and vomits and then stops breathing. Paul and Carla panic. For some reason, they drag Tammy into Carla's room. I'm not sure why. The cops question it, too. Both Paul and Carla said it was for better light. People conjecture that they thought it was more private in Carla's room, so if someone came down, they wouldn't see her. 
which doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, at this point, it's a full on scene. They're, they're doing CPR. It's, it's nuts. And mm-hmm. if anyone came down, they're going to be aware that something crazy is going on. They get her clothes back on. Paul starts performing CPR while Carla calls 911. While waiting for the paramedics, they hide the bottle of halothane in the laundry room and stash the video camera. The ambulance eventually makes it, though it was hampered by the blizzard. The lights and sirens and commotion wake up Corel, Dorothy, and Lori, and they all come stumbling down from their bedrooms, completely confused. Oh, what a scene, man. Tammy's loaded up in the ambulance, hauled off to the hospital. Corel and Dorothy follow, leaving Paul, Carla, and Lori in the house with the police, who are rightfully very suspicious. Because of the big burn on Tammy's face from the halothane-soaked rag, the cops think they might have been freebasing cocaine. Because uh, at that point of time, it was thought that freebasing cocaine could cause you to catch on fire. This is all because iconic comedian Richard Pryor claimed that happened to him, which actually wasn't what happened to him at all, just an excuse he made. He actually set himself on fire. But at that time, it was a misconception the cops had. Then the cop receives the call. Tammy was pronounced dead on arrival. Lori freaks out and runs up the stairs, the cop following her to see if she's all right. And when he gets back downstairs to talk to Carla and Paul, they find Carla in the laundry room, putting the vomit-stained blanket Tammy had been laying on in the washing machine. Carla's cold. She's calculating. More so than Paul, who just starts hitting himself in the head, screaming. And I'm just going to throw this out there because... Who knows if these monsters are even capable of love. But it seems like Paul really loved Tammy. More so even than Carla. He showed genuine remorse. He'd talk about it constantly in the years to come. Telling strangers that Tammy was actually his own sister. The cops stop Carla just before she dunks the blanket into the water-filled washing machine. Eventually, a senior detective shows up. And he hauls Paul and Carla to the station for questioning. After both Paul and Carla give separate statements, Paul angrily declares that if they weren't going to arrest them, then they couldn't hold them. And they were leaving. I don't know. It's it's really suspicious to me that Paul's like acting so defensive. Like, if you're not mm-hmm. going to arrest me, like, if you're innocent, why would you even think that? But anyway... <laughs> Well, maybe he was a little smarter than he acted, and, or we think he is, and he actually understood his constitutional rights. Who knows? Go, Ken. But nobody, <laughs> <laughs> nobody believed that the, that the burn on Tammy's face was from being dragged across the rug, as Carla and Paul said. And the coroner and police both came to the conclusion it was stomach acids from her vomit that caused it. Somehow, her autopsy showed no drugs in her system and very little alcohol. Later rumors would start that the coroner was drunk and more than likely because it was the holidays. Right. Uh, Henry from last podcast on the left, he does some hilarious impressions of a drunken Canadian coroner examining Tammy. That guy's funny. But uh, anyway, this is not funny. It's it is what it is. I don't know. It's f- Dorothy. Dorothy asked Lynn to go with her and Corell and help them pick out a casket. And then Carell, he asked Carla to go with them as well. But Carla told her father to 
fuck off. And just again, it goes to show how independent and bold Carla is. She just killed her own sister after raping her. And then when her father asks her to help him pick out a casket for her, she tells him to fuck off. And the funeral was utterly bizarre. It was an open coffin and Carla and Paul would not stop fiddling with the corpse, playing with Tammy's hair and straightening out her clothes. Yeah, Paul never left the side of the coffin, just kept stroking her, saying she was an angel, saying how beautiful she was, despite the fact that even with all the makeup, that red burn was very clear and visible. Paul put a ring in the casket with her, a Walkman, and both Carla and Paul put these bizarre letters in there. It was all the more unsettling because Dorothy and Carell didn't cry or show any emotion at all throughout the three-hour ordeal. While Paul was the most visibly upset person there, groaning and hitting himself in the head. So, after the funeral, everyone grieves in their own way. Carell and Dorothy take off for an annual vacation, just trying to get away from the house, which makes sense. And Lori, too, she leaves, goes and visits her grandparents in Mississauga. So it's just Paul and Carla at the house alone. And how do you think these two lovebirds cope with this awful, terrible tragedy? Well, Paul goes out and abducts a girl at knife point, blindfolds her and brings her back to the Homolka house where Carla watches as he rapes her. Then Paul takes her out to a deserted road near Lake Gibson and abandons her. They affectionately call her January Girl. Ugh, isn't that sweet? Mm -mm. Paul's presence was becoming too much of a burden on Carell and Dorothy. They just, they just couldn't take it anymore. They had originally said he could live there uh, with them until the wedding, but now not only wanted him to move out, but they were saying the wedding should be postponed as well. Carla was furious, irate. And again, this would be a pretty good point to break it off with Paul if she was so beaten and abused and, as she'd later claim, didn't want to marry him at all, but felt forced to. But instead of using this as an excuse to rid herself of her rapist boyfriend, she completely takes his side going on a tirade against her grieving parents. And she and Paul then go looking for a place of their own. By just plain dumb luck, Carla and Paul found a beautiful house on Lake Catherine that had been bought as an investment property. But because of an economic downturn, the investors were unable to sell it and desperately needed to rent. The rent was actually cheaper than the mortgage, but the owners were in a bind. And they were delighted to find this young couple, soon to be newlyweds, so clean cut, preppy. He was an accountant and a musician. She worked for a veterinarian, Ken and Barbie. They were perfect. And so Carla and Paul moved into 57 Bayview Drive, which would become a literal house of horror and eventually be bought by the city and raised to the ground. Carla was so happy with their new house. They'd they'd really shown her parents who was boss now. And they had a house even nicer than theirs. 
With their wedding coming up, Carla needed to find the perfect wedding present for Paul, a gift like no other. She knew just what to get him, a virgin to rape. And she knew just who, her old friend, Jane. These guys in their presence. Right? But here's the thing. Carla claims Paul insisted she give her Tammy. She says he beat her and forced her to give him her sister. But Paul had never met Jane before. Paul didn't even know this girl existed. This entire thing is 100% Carla. Jane Doe, obviously a pseudonym, was 12 years old when she met Carla at the number one pet center, excitedly coming into the shop, exclaiming over a terrier puppy named Toto in the window. Carla let her play with the dog and let her do her odd jobs around the store and Jane became a bit of a fixture at the pet store, a bubbly blonde who adored animals and looked a lot like Tammy. Jane hadn't heard from or seen Carla in over three years when Carla called her up out of the blue. Jane was an only child and her parents had gotten divorced. So she craved attention from older people. Carla was the big sister she'd never had. So when Carla invited her over to see her new house, watch some movies, and most importantly, meet her new puppy buddy, she was ecstatic. Carla tells her they're going to have a pajama party. They have dinner, watch the Demi Moore movie Ghost. Then Carla starts serving the 15-year-old alcoholic drinks spiked with ground-up halcyon. And when the girl is passed out, she poses her, pulling her sweatshirt up so her breasts are exposed, then calls Paul and tells him she's got a surprise for him, a wedding present, and to get right home. Paul was obviously very pleased. The young girl was developed beyond her 15 years, but Carla was quick to point out that while Jane may have had larger breasts, Carla's were much more shapely and beautiful. It's really hard to see Carla as any kind of victim, especially as she goes and pours halothane on a rag and holds it over the unconscious girl's face, doing the same exact routine that had killed her own sister. And who was the concerned one here? Who was worried that this might harm the girl? Paul. It's Paul who's demanding she be careful. Carla, she could give a shit. Well, Paul gets his video camera and begins recording. The video opens with a close-up of Paul lubricating the unconscious girl. Then pulls back to reveal Carla holding a cloth to the girl's face. Then there's a jump shot to Carla with her head between the girl's legs, licking. She turns to the camera, smiles, smacks her lips and wags her tongue seductively before doing that god-awful, stupid, extreme close-up thing. And the next shot, Paul is preparing to penetrate her. And just as Paul had wanted, she was a virgin. And Paul remarks about her hymen, I'll have to bust it. 
Afterwards, he triumphantly turns her on her side to focus the camera on the bloody blanket. Oh, fucking hell, man. Mm-hmm. Carla then sits on the girl's face, which is one of her signature moves that she enjoyed. There's other tapes of her doing the same exact thing with other women, including a sex worker they would later pick up in Atlantic City. Carla, moaning in pleasure the whole time, takes the unconscious girl's hand and uses it to masturbate with, rotating her hips as her eyes go crazy with lust, lasciviousness, and straight-up evil. When they're done abusing her, they tuck Jane into bed and she wakes up the next day, apparently none the wiser. They have breakfast and drive her home. Oh, so on June 15th, 1991, in the early morning hours, Paul Bernardo was creeping around Burlington, looking for license plates to steal and use for his cigarette smuggling operation. Cigarette smuggling had become such a problem that it was routine for law enforcement to photograph the license plates at the tobacco shops and forward the information to Border Patrol. So Paul, he'd switch up license plates during his runs. As Paul is creeping around the neighborhood, he literally runs into 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey. Leslie had a rebellious streak. She'd been in trouble a few times, running away, drinking, smoking weed. She'd been busted for shoplifting the doors tape waiting for the sun. All right. You know, we don't condone thievery here at Murder Coaster, making that clear. But shoplifting a Doors tape from the record store back in the days, you know, that's that's kind of a rite of passage or something. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying it's not the worst crime. You know, now you could just listen to it on YouTube. But back then, you'd have to pay 10, 15 bucks for one of those tapes, which it's a, it's a lot. I, now I feel old. <laughs> so uh, let's just get on with Leslie. But I'm going to say. Jim Morrison will be proud. <laughs> Some fellow classmates had died a few days earlier in a tragic car accident, and she'd spent the she spent the day first at a funeral and then at a makeshift memorial that was really just a teen party. Her mother, trying that tough love thing that was so popular at the time, had given her a strict curfew of 11 o'clock, and when Leslie didn't arrive on time, She'd locked all the doors. So Leslie was sitting outside her house with nowhere to go, locked out, when Paul came slinking up. Leslie asked him what he was doing, and he told her he was casing houses to rob. And supposedly, Leslie thought that was cool, which, come on, Leslie, red flag. But teenagers, they don't have the best instincts. So Leslie asked Paul if he has a cigarette which of course he does. I mean, he smuggled them for a living. He led her to his car, gave her a smoke, and asked her name. She told him and asked for his. He said that wouldn't be necessary and pulled the knife on her. After draping a red sweater over her head, Paul excitedly took off for home, not believing his good luck. He arrived home at 3 a.m. and immediately woke up Carla telling her he had a girl in the house with him. Carla went downstairs to get a look at Paul's new plaything. He had her kneeling on the living room floor, 
topless, the red sweater covering her head as a blindfold. Carla yawned and just went back upstairs and fell right back to sleep. There's not only callousness there, but casualness. It's all become so commonplace and normal at this point. Right. Paul then films her peeing. Urolagnia, or sexual arousal from urine, being one of his many paraphilias. Urolagnia is technically considered a deviant sexual interest as it falls outside the realm of typical sexual behavior. However, it's important to note that having a deviant sexual interest does not necessarily indicate any inherent harm or criminal behavior. It is only considered problematic if it involves non-consenting individuals, causes distress, or interferes with a person's ability to lead a normal life, which I think are all evident here and on a massive scale. So after filming her in the bathroom, Paul takes her to the spare bedroom and rapes her before coaxing her with champagne, trying to fill up her bladder and get her to pee again. In the morning when Carla came downstairs, she was so irate to see Paul had used their fancy crystal champagne flutes. The glasses were from France and very special to the relationship. And he was using them with this girl he picked up. The nerve. Right. So just to be clear, this is where Carla draws the line. This is where Carla stands up to her abuser and gets angry over champagne flutes. While Carla is pouting and reading American Psycho, Paul films Leslie taking a shower, instructing her to, quote, wash that bum real good before taking her downstairs to the living room. He asks her what her favorite radio station is and puts it on, at which point Carla finally gets over her irritation about the fancy wine glasses and makes her entrance. Paul asks Leslie if she'd like to have sex with two people at once. Carla sees the 14-year-old begin to quiver and fear and shake. And she whispers to Paul, tell her the other person is a woman. Paul starts videotaping as Carla slinks over the blindfolded child on her living room floor and gives her a long, sensuous kiss on the lips. As Pink Floyd's money begins on the radio, Paul sets the camera down on a chair and sandwiches himself between his wife and the teenage girl he'd abducted off the streets. The three engage in oral sex, Paul giving Leslie precise instructions, Leslie shakily asking if she's doing it right. The whole time, Carla is just going happily about it. As the song on the radio changes to R.E.M. Superman, Paul tells Leslie he's judging her, and the next two hours, would determine the poor girl's fate. Afterwards, apparently satisfied, a grinning Paul sipped champagne while Carla whispered questions for him to ask Leslie, like, what her favorite pastime was. I like spending time with my friends, the terrified girl shakily says. Oh, man. The next shot in the video are Carla looking away at the girl, giving devilish eyes as she happily performs cunnilingus on Leslie. Paul telling the blindfolded girl, just to let you know, Leslie, that's not me. In the next shot, the girls have traded places. Now Carla lays on her back, head back and eyes closed as if sunbathing. 
as Paul tells Leslie that she's being judged by how well she performs oral sex on his wife. The next scene is Paul preparing to sodomize Leslie as Carla films, explaining it was punishment for not being able to defecate on command for the camera in a scene that was apparently edited out. Leslie howls in pain, screaming and pleading for Carla's help. Carla just keeps videotaping, hands steady as ever as she focuses on the girl, screeching in agony and swearing if they let her go, she'll never tell anyone. Afterwards, as Leslie lay curled up, naked on the floor, weeping hysterically and begging to go home, Carla claims she felt pity for her and let her cradle the expensive teddy bear. Paul had given her for Christmas. Oh, see, she's not a monster. And then she says she slipped Leslie a couple sleeping pills to ease her pain. Now, Paul Bernardo is a psychopath and a compulsive liar, but he has come clean on a number of crimes, admitting to rapes where innocent men have been accused and locked up. I'm not saying we can trust him, but one thing he's always remained steadfast about and continues to this day to swear to is that he always planned on letting his victims go. He was a rapist. He was a sadist. But he says he was not a killer. He swears he never killed anybody and that Carla was the killer, that she was the cold one with the strong stomach the veterinarian who gleefully amputated puppy tails and mailed them to her friends as a joke. He euthanized pets and loved to dissect frogs. And if you think about it, Paul acts out of a sick passion emotionally, while Carla, on the other hand, seems capable of a clinical detachment. In the end, it's Carla's word against Paul. And we can't know for certain who it was that killed Leslie Mahaffey. But one thing is for certain. Leslie was strangled to death with a piece of black electrical cord while passed out on sleeping pills. Later, the coroner would find two small bruises on Leslie's back that could have been made by Carla's knees. They seemed to be too small to be Paul's, who was six feet tall and nearly 200 pounds. They made a tent out of tarps in the basement, like a little kid play for it, to catch all the blood and bits of bone and muscle as Paul used a power saw to cut Leslie's body into 10 pieces. Each of these pieces was placed in a cardboard box filled with concrete, a method Paul had come up to hide the body. Now, Carla claims she went to work in the morning, came home, and the body was all dissected and the parts encased in their concrete coffins. But that doesn't make sense to me. I just can't see Paul being able to prepare the basement, including covering all the windows, building the tent, buying and mixing the concrete, and then setting all the parts in them in just eight hours. Paul claims the tent was all Carla's idea, which, let's face it, makes sense. He honestly seems too dumb to come up with such an idea that, by the way, worked perfectly. 
unlike the concrete idea, which would fail miserably and was all Paul's idea. Carla is the smart one in this relationship, no doubt. Paul claims they work together as a team, dismembering the body. He cutting it up into pieces and Carla carefully washing each body part before slipping them into the concrete-filled boxes. The block with the torso was already leaking fluids and beginning to fall apart before they even got it out of the house. The two of them took the concrete blocks to Lake Gibson, a romantic place they frequented as fresh young lovers, and dumped them into the water. Apparently, not realizing that this was a man-managed body of water used to feed the Ontario hydropower generating station. And the lake regularly dropped three feet in depth during peak power usage times. Because of this, two weeks later, fishermen would discover the concrete blocks, which had already cracked open, revealing their grisly insides to the incredulous anglers who couldn't comprehend what they were seeing and would be scarred by the image for the rest of their lives. And they would not be the only ones terribly scarred for the rest of their lives over the deeds of Paul and Carla. And that's where we're going to end it today, folks. So be sure to tune in next week for part two because I hear wedding bells. Hmm. Everyone loves a wedding. What a case, huh? Oh, man, absolutely. Okay. So, (laughs) hey, dear listeners, fellow freaks, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? Send us an email at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Bye.